I'm Nenzel Mohammed. Welcome to Jobmakers. You may have heard about the H-1B Skilled Worker Visa that permits foreign-born talent to work at U.S. companies. But have you heard about the OPT, or Optional Practical Training Program, that comes in between studying in the U.S. as an international student and working on a work visa? It's existed since the post-World War years, allows us to retain the talent we've educated, and it's often the time when immigrants come up with ideas and start businesses. It helps the U.S. Yet, recent proposed legislation seeks to end the program completely under the guise of sticking it to big tech. For Dr. Leah Palagashvili, immigrant from the former Soviet Union, senior research fellow at the Mercator Center at George Mason University, and affiliated research fellow at NYU Law, wiping out this program is not only counterproductive, it's also a national security threat. In a policy brief co-authored with Jack Salmon, also of the Mercator Center, she argues that reforming and making it easier to access optional practical training would build this country's edge in the global search for talent. The brief, titled Reforming Optional Practical Training to Enhance Technological Progress and Innovation, demonstrates how we all benefit from having foreign-born talent working and innovating alongside U.S.-born talent. Yet, lately that talent has been moving to Canada, the U.K., and other countries, and this undermines our ability to keep up and be safe, as you learn in this week's Job makers. Leah Palagashvili, Senior Research Fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and Affiliated Research Fellow at NYU Law. Welcome to the Job Makers Podcast. How are you? Thank you, Sifraj, for having me on. So you're here because you wrote a co-wrote a policy brief on what's called the OPT or Opt- Optional Practical Training Program that is uh, afforded to foreign-born university students in the U.S. So just maybe just more broadly, tell us about the impact of international students on U.S. college campuses and the wider economy. So international students make up a large share of programs at universities and especially in graduate programs. If we just look at some examples in the U.S., uh, you know, University of Southern California and New York University, international students uh, make up at least a third of the student body. At Columbia, international students make up over half of the entire student body. Uh, And actually, what should really be celebrated is that they play a huge role as uh, contributors to STEM programs in particular. So STEM programs are those that are science, technology, engineering, and mathematics degrees. And about half of all international students in the United States are are enrolled in STEM programs. Uh, And also, if we look at some specific programs, um, some specific STEM programs across U.S. colleges, we see that international students are making up even a larger share of those programs. Uh, So, for example, if we look at um, petroleum engineering, international students account for 82% of graduate students in petroleum engineering, Uh, 74% in something like an electrical engineering, 71% in computer information sciences. So they really are driving uh, STEM programs at universities. Um, And I think it's pretty important to point out because sometimes um, there's sometimes a concern about whether international students are, quote unquote, crowding out American students. Uh, whether their presence in, in these programs means some some American student is unable uh, is unable to attend that particular college, um, and that's just simply not the case. 
So in, in, in many research studies, um, we actually find that international students have a positive effect on enrollment from American students uh, because international students are paying such a high tuition that it actually helps subsidize the cost of enrolling additional domestic students. I don't know if you've ever looked at tuition rate differences between international and domestic students, but you'll see that international students are often paying like four or five times the tuition rate of American students. I am very well aware of that because I was one of those international students. <laughs> and yes, we paid a lot. Um, and we talked about universities in California, New York, uh, but it, it's it's all across the country. I mean, University of Alabama, UT Austin, uh, immigrants are making up a large portion of STEM programs everywhere, and they're helping to maintain these STEM programs, as we'll talk about a little bit more. Um, so the American Tech Workforce Act of 2021 calls for the end of optional practical training uh, as it, quote, mostly benefits big tech companies by providing tax breaks and allowing them to hire workers at a lower cost, so they say. Uh, the bill was introduced by Republican Rep. Jim Banks as part of a Republican Study Committee initiative to, quote, hold big tech accountable. This is something we hear about all the time. So you and your colleague, Jack Salmon, uh, argue in your policy brief that, quote, bolstering the OPT or optional practical training program rather than undermining uh, the United States edge in the global race for talent uh, is what needs to be done. And you recommend a series of reforms. So let's back up a little bit. What is the optional practical training program and why has it been singled out? So the uh, OPT program, the optional practical training program, so it's designed to allow foreign students to work for at least one year upon graduation from a U.S. college or university. Uh, and recently, they've allowed a maximum of up to three years if you graduate from a STEM field. So again, the STEM extension is relatively is relatively new. Basically, the OPT program acts as like a, a primary on-ramp for highly educated foreign students who graduate from U.S. universities and college to enter the US uh, labor force. And over the years, it has grown significantly. And that's part of the reason it has been singled out as well, because they're like, look at all these international students coming in on, on the OPT program uh, who are taking quote unquote American jobs. So over the past 20 years, the number of foreign students participating in OBT has grown almost tenfold. Uh, there were uh, under 25,000 uh, participants um, in, from 1999 to 2000, so in that academic year. And then in the last, in, you know, last few years, we've had upwards of over 200,000 OPT participants. Uh, and, and some of these OPT participants will seek H-1B employment sponsorship uh, through their respective employers uh, after. And this, the rationale behind this is not an act of goodwill to international students. Obviously, there's some benefit or great benefit to the U.S. by retaining this talent, right? Yeah, absolutely. So they're retaining the talent. Um, and and that's another thing that we can we can have a little bit of more of a deep dive on. But international students in particular, they've played a significant role in our economy as inventors and also patenting in new ideas, um, especially in science and technology and, and technology fields, which is great for U.S. economy because that helps boost innovation and productivity. Um, if we look at something like patent rates, right? So we know that we, we have studies that show that immigrant graduates with science and engineering degrees have historically had a patent rate double the average American rate. 
Um, and there are several studies that try to parse this out further. So there's one influential study that found that since 1940, a 1% increase in immigrant college graduates as a share of the population increases the number of patents per capita by about 9 to 18%. This is broadly the case for all immigrants, not only you know student and international students um, in particular, because if we look at immigrant share of U.S. patents, that has also risen significantly over the years. So again, not only international students, but immigrants as well. Um, in, one, in one study, we know that in 1975, immigrants' share of patents was only 9%, but by 2015, immigrant patents represented 28% of all patents in the U.S. There's a wealth of data and examples all over U.S. history and across the media today that points to exactly what you're talking about and shows us who this talent is and uh, what they do that benefits not just them, but the country as a whole. Uh, so you just said overall, immigrants, uh, international students are more likely to uh, raise the rate of patents. Uh, they, you also state in your policy brief that they're more likely to start a successful company when compared to U.S. born students. I like to say that the act of migrating is itself an entrepreneurial act. So it, it's sort of comes naturally to many of these students. What are some of the other data points you found in your research that sort of speaks to this? Yeah, so that, that's exactly right. It, it is important to point out that these international students contribute not only through you know, employment and, and patents, but they later end up as entrepreneurs and innovators in the technology industry. Actually, if we look at all of the billion dollar startups in the United States, uh, 22% of them. So think about companies like Zoom, Tesla, SpaceX, uh, Instagram, right? They had at least one immigrant founder who came to the country as an international student. Um, and then uh, one study even found that international students are more likely to start a successful company when compared to domestic students. And by the way, we just want to emphasize this again, that we're, it's not only international students, but we're seeing this um, among immigrants in general. This is the case for immigrants in general too. So we know that immigrants uh, show an 80% higher rate of entrepreneurship than native born individuals. And they start companies quite quickly after entering the United States. Wow, that's incredible. Immigrants are job makers, not job takers. And is there exactly. something is there something about the U.S. that is uh, that brings out this entrepreneurship in in people? Uh, well, we have good institutions that are pretty supportive and conducive for entrepreneurship in general. It's relatively easy to start a business here. Uh, we actually also have a culture that is open to experimentation and failure. That's not always the case in other countries. Sometimes in other countries, if you start a business and you fail, uh, it's it's frowned upon. Right. So uh, society does not like that. Your social status uh, goes down if you start a, if you start a business and failed. Uh, and I think that's important to highlight that in the U.S. as as people, you know, as individuals, society, we don't frown upon failures. Um, and, and, you know, we are open. We are a culture that is open to experimentation um, and just to see where it goes. Right. So in a, in a future episode, uh, we're going to hear from a, a, a entrepreneur from France who specifically says that that culture of entrepreneurship does not exist. They don't even want you to start businesses. They just want you to enter the government and have a conventional life and that failure is indeed frowned upon. So there is something special about the U.S. And 
some, that's something special has always existed in the U.S. to allow for entrepreneurship uh, from U.S.-born people and from immigrants. But you also state that uh, this OPT or optional practical training is a national security necessity. So to the untrained eye, this might seem a little bit absurd. Ex ex explain, what have we got to lose? So that was a statement from the Department of Homeland Security, actually. It was in a 2008 report. They concluded that the expansion of OPT is a national security necessity. And I'll quote directly from the Department of Homeland Security on this. So they said, uh, quotes, with their large and growing populations of STEM graduate scientists, high-tech industries in Russia, China, and India, and others in the OECD, now compete much more effectively against the U.S. high technology industry, end quote. So then the DHS goes on to acknowledge um, that the OPT uh, STEM extension should be justified on the grounds that American companies are harmed when they cannot recruit high-skilled foreign workers. So again, I think that's really important to point out um, as well that the DHS sees this as a national as a national security reason. Um, and by the way, America has been an active recruiter in global talent. You know, we have recognized that when the best and the brightest minds blend their blend their ideas and talents, innovation follows. And I think this type of national security reasoning is coming back in our minds as we're thinking about competition with China. We're trying to be a little bit more thoughtful about, you know, our competition with China. And maybe we're starting to remember our old methods that worked in the past, which is, OK, bring bring the best and the brightest minds to America and innovation and innovation will flow. And it's also a very low cost and effective way to increase America's edge over China, you know, let America access the world's most talented people. That's a very, very important point. So, A, we don't want to... Uh, teach and educate people and then just send them elsewhere. We want to keep that talent here. Uh, you spoke earlier about companies that had at least one immigrant founder. So that talent, foreign-born talent uh, mixes with the U.S.-born talent to found incredible companies and innovations. Uh, so not only do we benefit from them, but we collaborate with foreign-born talent in the U.S. Uh, and that helps us keep our competitive edge. And in a world that is not only... Uh, much more competitive and globalized, but you know, cybersecurity threats uh, as one issue, uh, we do need to have a competitive advantage. Um, there was a University of Pennsylvania study that examined, uh, uh, I think, over 2,000 U.S. companies from 1994 to 2014, and they found when these U.S. multinational companies face H-1B visa restrictions which prevented them from hiring the high-skilled foreign workers that they needed in the U.S., these companies instead increased employment in their overseas locations. And ironically, the top three um, locations were uh, Canada, India, and China. <laughs> um, and by the way, we, we see this anecdotally too. So, you know, Microsoft has continued to open up um, research and development offices, affiliate offices in, in Canada. They did this in 2007. They did it again in 2018. And if you look at their announcements, just read them. And they actually say, we're doing this uh, to attract top talent because in Canada, uh, their immigration system is much more favorable and open to high-skilled uh, high skilled workers. So, you know, America first nationalism is not going to get you far when it comes to 
attracting and keeping the talent that is going to make us competitive and, and, and have an edge over other countries. We have to go wherever the talent is. Um, so what have been the trends recently? You talked about, you talked about Canada, you talked about Eastern Europe, uh, Russia, China, India. Um, what has been the trends recently, both here in the US and among our competitors, when it comes to uh, attracting high-skilled foreign talent in general? So uh, we have seen declining rates of international students uh, to the U.S., uh, and this has been since 2015. And when we look at survey questions about why this is the case, they point to the difficulty in being able to enter the U.S. labor force post-graduation. Um, on the other hand, if we look at what's happening in Canada and, and in the U.K., uh, both of those countries have actually revamped their uh, immigration policies to attract more international students and to base and to streamline and to make it easier to have those international students get jobs um, in, in Canada and in the UK post-graduation. And in fact, we're seeing more international students in the UK and in Canada. Interesting. So it's declining in the U.S. and it's increasing among our competitors, even our closest neighbor to the north. Uh, that seems like a bit of a tragedy. So what do you recommend we do about the optional practical training program, whereas uh, Jim Banks wants to cut it entirely, uh, you say that we need to actually foster it and increase it? Yes, yeah, so my, uh, my co-author Jack Simon and I have a set of proposals that we think will help reform the OPT program. I think first and foremost, and this will be one of the easiest things we can do, is just extend those eligible years from one year to three years, which is already what's happening in the STEM program, right? So if you graduated with a STEM degree, you have three years uh, to work on the OBT. We can make that the case for all graduates, not only STEM. So increase the eligible years of work for non-STEM graduates on OBT from one year to three years. Um, the second thing is... I, as I mentioned before, in the beginning, we didn't have this restrict, restriction um, on the OPT program that said uh, graduate uh, students who, international students have to work in industries that are related to their field. So we can change that to go back to the original uh, uh, part of the program, which is allow these foreign graduates to work in industries unrelated to their field of, uh, to their, unrelated to their field of study. Um, Another, another reform idea we have is eliminating the minimum working hour requirements for employment authorization, um, and then also removing um, outdated employer sponsorship requirements. So some of these other ones are just basically streamlining the process because it takes, it takes uh, a long time and a lot of paperwork uh, in the U.S., to authorize uh, employment for the OBT. And then in the policy brief, you'll actually see, we have a little table where you can see the differences, how long it takes to do the same type of requirements in Canada and the UK. And they're much faster and much easier than it is in, in the US. So again, to compete with our competitors, Canada and the UK, we can, we can just basically streamline some of these things, make it easier. And many of these things don't require Congress to act or the president. It's uh, statutory under the Department of Homeland Security, right? Yes. Yes, that's correct. So there are things that we can be doing right now that would be easier to implement and beneficial to us, but we're not doing it. We're not, we're not doing it. And, and 
clearly this is going to be a tough sell to some Americans, even though what you've outlined here has been very, very compelling, uh, both in this interview with you and, and in your policy brief. What, what should skeptical Americans keep in mind when considering your proposal in this time of heightened restrictionist and nationalistic sentiments? I think one framework that we as Americans could utilize that I mentioned earlier is just, you know, if we think about America first, right, I'm going to use that motto, America first. Well, for America first, it helps America to have the best and the brightest talent come to America and work in America and come up with inventions in America and boost productivity in America and boost and basically make America a global leader in technology. And so I think, again, if you're thinking about America first and you don't want to, you know, you're not thinking about, you know, we're helping these immigrants, then this is, this is one of the best ways you can help America, right? Is allow high-skilled talent, um, high-skilled talent to come in. That's what's going to keep America first or ahead. Uh, and as as you mentioned, since 2015, uh, that um, entry of foreign of of best and the brightest has been declining. So we are really in danger of losing that edge. And it is something that we really do need to keep in mind, especially as we see uh, tensions with places like Russia and China escalating. Um, you have your own immigration story, don't you? I do. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about it. So this is not a high-skilled immigration story. <laughs> this is a pure luck immigration story. Uh, so I was born um, in the Soviet Union as it was collapsing. Um, and we were, uh, my family and I were refugees from uh, Azerbaijan to Armenia. Unfortunately, after the Soviet Union was collapsing, there were wars that broke out and all the different um in all the different countries that were part of the Soviet Union. Um, and so I'm part Georgian, part Armenian. Um, we had to, we moved, we you know, moved to Armenia and were living there for basically five years of, of war between Azerbaijan and Armenia. Um, there were a lot of blockades, uh, food shortages. Uh, it was a very dark period, as my parents describe it. Um, I don't remember too much because they tried to keep it very light inside of the house, even though, and I was young, but it was, it was a, a, pr a pretty bad time. Um, but one day we received an invitation. We received a letter in the mail and basically said we had won the green card lottery to come to the United States. And um, that was in 1995. So we moved to the United States in 1995. I was, I was seven years old at the, at the time. And it's just completely changed our lives and the trajectory of our lives. Um, and I know by comparison, because I have cousins and family who are still there and they're nowhere, you know, nowhere near um, where we are. They don't have the same opportunities and they're almost still stuck in the same, same place where they were 30 years ago. So Leah Palagashvili? Uh, senior Research Fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Thank you so much for joining us on the Job Makers Podcast and for doing this research for us. Thank you so much for having me on. It was great to chat with you about this. Job Makers is a weekly podcast about immigrant entrepreneurship and contribution produced by Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston, and the Immigrant Learning Center in Malden, Massachusetts, a not-for-profit that gives immigrants a voice. Thanks for joining us for this week's special policy episode 
on retaining immigrant talent to benefit this country. If you know an outstanding immigrant business owner or innovator or researcher we should talk to, email Denzel, that's D-N-Z-I-L, at jawbreakerspodcast.org. I'm Denzel Mohammed. See you next Thursday at noon for another Jobmakers.